Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I am Len. I am your host this week, joined by our good friend, Tap Taps Ian Boudreaux. Hello, everybody. And once again, our official unofficial historical consultant, UNC Chapel Hills, Dr. Brett Devereaux. Hey, everybody. And we've got kind of a, a combined theme episode uh, today. We're going to be talking about, uh, for one thing, the Industrial Revolution and Industrialization in Strategy Games, somewhat inspired by the fact that I've been playing a lot of the Victoria 3 1.2 patch. Um, I think, have all of us played it at this point? I have. Yeah. At least some amount, yeah. Um, but also the concept of snowballing in strategy games, which is kind of interrelated, because if you think about it, uh, the industrialization or the industrial revolution or second industrial revolution, as some people call it, was sort of the most significant case of snowballing <laughs> that happened in real life, uh, at least in terms of like human population and productivity. So I thought those topics kind of go well together. Um, I think we'll start. Uh, Brett, you mentioned you could talk a little bit to in real life. What exactly are the barriers that prevent a sort of advanced urban society from, quote unquote, snowballing into sort of exponential population and productivity? Yeah, there are quite a few barriers that that stand in, in your way. And I think a lot of strategy games really struggle with them because these games tend to be very focused on the mechanics by which you build a large state, and they tend to be very bad at how states fragment or, or break down. Um, I mean, I think Paradox Games in particular have this habit that like in every era, states conglomerate over the course of the period, and there's always uh, sort of a struggle to get mechanics that actually create reliable fracturing of states. I think You've got a number of factors that keep states from growing into infinity. Um, you know, perhaps the largest and most obvious is simple issues of physical space. And this is something that strategy games tend to obviate. In, in Victoria, to take an example, uh, it, I am, if I am, let's say, I am playing as Great Britain, I am equally able to micromanage the steel industry as in London as I am the steel industry in an African colony or in Hong Kong. Um, whereas, right, in the real world, there are, uh, there's a lot of friction between those things. Um, Victoria uh, 3 incorporates some of this, uh, in that if you have a huge overseas empire, it does in fact pull from your convoy pool to manage some of the, the trade inside of your trade network, but it isn't nearly as intense as it should be. And that doesn't hit the sort of the basic problems of distance where you can issue orders instantly to a general who is half the world away, goods teleport from one side of your empire to the other to be used in the right factories. And so in the real world, as empires get larger, um, over physical space, the time it takes to move troops from one side to the other, to move orders and information from one side of the other grows. And so empires tend to hit limits for how far they can expand. Um, and you just generally don't see this in strategy games, right? Where like world conquest is a thing that, that people do. Yeah, it's interesting because they do have the mechanic in Victoria 3 where 
your bureaucracy costs spiral based on, you know, the amount of population you have in your incorporated states um, as opposed to just territories. But they don't really account for distance in terms of, you know, one one incorporated person in Manchester costs an equivalent amount of bureaucracy to one incorporated person in like Hyderabad or something. Um, that would be kind of an interesting tweak or or mod to see if they they actually scaled that to you know when things are further away it's it's a larger strain on your bureaucracy right and uh, of course they are dealing with the period in history where you get the emergence of the modern administrative state so the huge expansion of your bureaucracy but also the greater efficiency of your bureaucracy like it makes a a degree of sense but you know again ask say the russian empire uh, if it's easier or harder to have your population spread over half a dozen time zones, um, and you sort of have your answer um, very vividly actually displayed in 1904-1905 when Russia ends up in a war with Japan that is taking place on their Pacific coast. And despite the fact that the Russian Empire at that point very clearly has the larger army um, and for 10 minutes the larger navy, uh, the the sheer difficulty of getting those forces to the battle space against the Japanese Empire, which is of course very focused there, is, is what causes them to lose. They only have the one Trans Siberian Railway, railway, so their overland logistics are terrible. Um, and then they have to send the Baltic Fleet all the way around the tip of Africa to get um, to the Pacific, where it is promptly blown up in a day. Um, and so. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Russia complaining about the the naval warfare mechanics, as we all do. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah. this was, I mean, this was the problem. Part of the reason their fleet loses so badly is that it was not in great shape when it reached the other side of the world. Um, there were other reasons, but uh, but this was sort of part of it. And so, you know, distance is a real factor for this sort of infinite expansion. Uh, I mean, it's not the, the only factor, of course, and the other things you have to think of, if we think about economic expansion, right, infrastructure that you have built, factories that you have built, uh, they impose maintenance costs in a way that is rarely really modeled in games, and they impose legacy costs in a way that's very rarely modeled in games. Um, you, you can see this sort of radical simplification, again, in Victoria 3. For something like, let's take the motor industries building, that in 1845, you build a factory for churning out the most primitive steam train. Um, in the 1920s, that factory will still be useful for you, churning out modern electric trains and cars. Um, in the real world, <laughs> um, your early 19th century... A uh, steam engine factory is probably not going to be immediately relevant uh, for you in the 1920s, but you've been stuck for decades. You have to maintain that factory. It has workers. It has running costs. It needs to be repaired. And those costs may make it harder to build a fresh, new, up-to-date, sparkling, modern factory. This is one of the reasons generally cited for why after World War II, uh, Japan and West Germany caught up economically so rapidly. They had 
just been rebuilt from almost nothing in Germany's case, right, with, with Marshall Plan funds. Uh, and as a result, all of their factories and infrastructure were new. They did not have huge legacy costs because their legacy structures had been annihilated by strategic bombing. And so uh, the result was very rapid economic growth. And in many cases, you look at something like the textiles industry in the United States in, in that period is eventually is outcompeted um, by overseas textile industry because... If you're a textile factory in Fall River, Massachusetts, you're stuck with the factory that was built in 1890. It's too expensive for you to have the money to build a new factory because you have to maintain it. So you're stuck with it. And if it's not competitive, then you go out of business. And so these sorts of legacy costs are usually not modeled in games either. Um, Each factory is just as useful as the one before it and the one after it. And so you don't end up stuck in this sort of situation where because I was dominant yesterday, I cannot be dominant tomorrow. Yeah, Hearts of Iron has kind of an interesting way of abstracting that, where it's still a military factory is just a military factory throughout the game, but they do have that like efficiency um, penalty where if you switch over from, you know, Panzer 3s to Panzer 4s, there's that time for that efficiency bar to fill back up. That's like, okay, we're having to retool everything to build Panzer fours. Now um, that might be the only strategy game I can think of that has a mechanic like that. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Victoria three, it's, it's very frictionless, right? You, as long as you've yeah. got the right inputs for the new method, right. You can the, just switch production methods. Or, is, yeah. Do I have enough steel to switch over? Right. To yeah. Like do I have to tools? And yeah. I never do. So, yeah yeah it's it's i think frictionless is the right word though i will give hearts of iron one place where it does actually impose legacy costs and that's in naval warfare right if you play if you play as great britain like you don't have the choice to rebuild your navy from scratch your question is i have all these old clunker obsolete battleships what strategy can i implement with this fleet because this is the fleet i'm stuck with um, I can't scrap it and rebuild it before the war starts. And so, which is, of course, I mean, that is the problem that Great Britain had. They're like, we have this legacy fleet. Uh, our economy is toast because we, you know, basically lit, lit it on fire in World War I. We definitely can't afford to build a new fleet. So we have the fleet that we built for that conflict with a handful of, of newer ships, right? I mean, it is a damning indictment of the Royal Navy going into World War II that the HMS Hood was still their most uh, impressive uh, uh, warship, right? This is, a, this is a battle cruiser. Like, dude, the Hood was laid down in the closing days of World War I, if I'm remembering correctly. This was not a new ship. Um, and it, and it, it was slated as the war was breaking out. Hood was slated for an extensive program of modernization uh, which it never got to because it met some shells from the Bismarck first. Um, but but that was the problem. Like You have to modernize this old hull because it's what you have instead of you probably would prefer to build something brand new. Whereas, of course, the United States with its enormous industrial might and the advantage of having its battleship fleet annihilated in the opening day of the war for it uh, the United States can respond by building a completely new navy centered around aircraft carriers. Um, you know, avoiding that sunk cost problem. This is one of the rare cases where you get that. And sunk cost was a huge shaping effect for 
the the Western allies going into World War One or World War Two rather. Obviously, it shapes British strategy at sea. It shapes French strategy on land, where France, in a way, was was operating under the singular disadvantage of having won the First World War and therefore still having all of their World War One era tanks. And so, once again, the strategy becomes: How do we fight a war? With these tanks, because these are the tanks we have, and we have thousands of them. And you know, as you get into the 1930s, the French are developing new tanks, but by then they have already decided that the way they are going to wage war is a way that is consistent with these older tanks. It leads them to a, a, a warfare doctrine called methodical battle, which turns out to have been a terrible idea and a very bad way to fight. But they're almost trapped into it by. Well, we have 6,000 Renault FT-17s. What can we do with, with 6,000 Renault FT-17s? It was the very best tank of World War I. So to, to kind of um, tie it back into like game mechanics, Ian, do you remember the first time you encountered uh, like the concept of like snowballing, whether it's in, you know, any strategy game? Where you just realized, okay, there's there's a way to break this. There's a way to like turn turn my stuff into more stuff makers and kind of get out of control and trivialize everything. Oh gosh, um, yeah. I mean, I was a terrible like when I played um, going back to like Warcraft, Orcs, and Humans, and the first Starcraft. Yeah. Um, I was always one of those just awful turtle turtle players and. That was always my goal was to survive long enough behind my walls until I had created an unstoppable army of, you know, what, uh, give it to a command and conquer red alerts. And uh, the what was the, the what was it? The Goliath tank. Yeah. Mammoth um, tank. Yeah. The mammoth tank. Mammoth. That's it. And yep. Uh, so you could just steamroll across any map pretty much um, with uh, a couple dozen of those things. but. Um, so yeah, that was kind of. I guess I, I always wanted to play the economic game because you you would hear hit a point where all of a sudden that you could produce these unstoppable units faster than you know you could ever use them up. So, um, yeah, I've always liked, <laughs> been a, a, I guess a snowball player for as long as I've any time that I've ever had a chance to do it. Yeah, those classic RTSs actually I was I was kind of thinking about when I was coming up with this this show idea because they have sort of an interesting way of trying to keep you from snowballing, which is usually just having a hard population cap. Um yeah. like, you know, Warcraft and StarCraft, you know, make you build like farms or supply depots, which is sort of modeling like, okay, how are we feeding all of these, you know, these soldiers or these orcish warriors or something where it but then it, it generally hard caps out at like 200, 300. So late game becomes this uh, consideration between how big do I want my army and how big do I want my, you know, core of civilian units that let me quickly rebuild my army. And that sort of becomes a major meta thing at the very, very highest, uh, levels of play for sure. So then when um, you hit the, uh, when you hit the population cap in say age of empires two, that's when you have yeah. the big, uh, peasant culling and, uh, right. everybody dies and you create more cavalry and, uh, go and win. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And Definitely then, how warfare was done. Exactly. <laughs> we don't have any use for civilians anymore, so we're nope. just going to send half of you to die. Good job, everybody. Um, uh, come yeah. to the village uh, center for a minute. We've got a little talk to have. Right, right. But then there's also, especially in Age of Empires, to somewhat also StarCraft and uh, Warcraft, there's the issue of just like the amount of physical resources on the map. Like eventually... I've seen I've seen some professional StarCraft 2 games where they they basically mine out the whole map and then it's just yep. okay, whoever has more units left is probably gonna win. Right. Um, well there's your your uh, their classic problem of going to war with the army you have. That's yeah. <laughs> you're, you're exactly in exactly. that situation. So it's it's interesting because like obviously RTSs aren't supposed to be historical simulators. I think for a long time Age of Empires was maybe one of the better <laughs> historical like uh play play through history games before you know Civ got bigger before the paradox games came along um but i think it's interesting how they 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 sort of try to try to tell the story of how food shapes the growth potential of societies uh at least on a very abstract level I think the one the one thing, of course, that I feel like games often struggle with in expressing the sort of the shaping influence of food, right, is that they're you're never in danger of running out of arable land uh, in, in most of these games. There's never been a situation where like, man, I have the resources to build more farms, but I simply do not possess any open space to put them on that is suitable, which is the problem that like ancient <laughs> empires were facing that's why they did so much conquest it was the only good way to get the thing they needed and the thing they needed was space for farms well and i think we talked a little bit about this when we did the the farthest frontier show which i think we we all enjoyed that game but I, brett i believe you you said it would be something like 10 to 20 times as much space <laughs> required just for crops Oh yeah, as, you're you're adding uh, zeros. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, that would be that would be very hard to do in something like a city builder, I think, or a or um especially an RTS. I mean a farm in Age of Empires is like a windmill with like eight little squares around it that can feed, you know, your entire army pretty much. Well, right. Forever, and, and I mean but, this is I think you see you see efforts to do this kind of thing instead of expanding the farms by restricting the farmable area. I'm I'm thinking of the um the stronghold games where mm -hmm. like the arable land on some of those maps was often a fairly small percentage of the map. So now you can fight over the limited amount of arable land. Um, and this sort of provides a kind of a cap on how large that you're going to get. But yeah, I think in most games you know that's not a that's not an, an interesting mechanic. Ironically, looping back to Victoria, yeah. this can actually be a problem in Victoria Three because arable land is limited. Um, it is, and yeah. and depending on where you are, you can in fact run into its limits. Although I think most countries won't, but some will. Yeah, there's sort of like this this like three tiered thing in Victoria Three where if you just have arable land that's not developed, you'll have peasants farming it who kind of produce like enough food for themselves and then a bit more um 
And then you eventually will turn that into these more advanced uh, industrialized farms. And then from there, you know, if, if you've if you've gotten all the peasants into like better jobs as like laborers or farmers, then you have to start stacking more input goods on top of that, like fertilizer to do intensive agriculture uh, to like squeeze every little bit of food you can out. Um, there's kind of an interesting loop around the mid game where you can start doing intensive grazing uh, with just feeding a bunch of grain to your cows and then they produce more fertilizer, which can be used to produce more grain. It's one of those things like, oh, now that we have atmospheric engines, we can burn coal to get more coal. <laughs> and that yeah. sort of creates a positive feedback loop. Although eventually you're going to be, as historically they were, you're going to be relying on synthetic nitrates to provide the, the fertilizer you need. Equally interesting when we're talking about scaling right is that you also eventually you have technologies with production mode changes which don't increase the productivity of the farm or factory at all. They just reduce how many workers it uses. Yeah. And that creates this interesting question. Like I'm currently, my current game right now is Austria. And yeah, oh God, for the longest time for Austria, like your problem is not worker shortage because uh, your country is huge and it's very populous. So you're just mm -hmm. trying to employ everybody. So like, it's like, oh, wow, I, I unlocked a new tool technology I'm definitely not going to use because I have a ton of people. My wages are rock bottom and it's just not... I need to employ people. And then, but on the flip side, once all of your peasants are employed, once, once you have reached kind of full employment, those technologies become incredibly important to squeeze the last bit of production out of your workers. Yeah. Or alternately, you can enable uh, welfare and no migration controls, and half the world moves into your parlor and then you employ them. <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting because I, I did find I did implement. Some, I did a Japan game in 1.2, which is similar. I mean, they're they're technologically kind of behind most of Europe to start with. But, you know, population does not become a problem until like at the earliest, the 1880s or 1890s, even if you're really cranking stuff out. And uh, I did implement some of those those technologies or some of those production methods early just because it was something I had a huge shortage of, like wood, especially when you still have isolation enabled, so you can't trade for more of it. And it was like, I just need these industries to be as profitable as possible to keep these goods cheap, even if it means I'm going to unemploy like 16,000 people and they're all going to turn into radicals, which, you know, had knock on effects later, but uh, we don't need to dwell on that. Uh, <laughs> um. Smash cut to the Meiji Restoration. Exactly. Yeah, it was a very late restoration. It was like a 1901 restoration, but uh, mainly because I didn't want to have a civil war over it. So I, I kind of took my time. Um, yeah. yeah, I have Ian, to have admit, you, uh, Victoria 3 oh. is the only game where I look at it. I'm like, I just really don't feel like having a civil war over this right now. <laughs> I'm just going to not, we're just going to, we're just going to do yeah. this, do this, do this differently. Like, yeah, like, like, let's go for this reform. And then, you know, three interest groups are ticked off and like, yeah, you know, I could fight this and win, but it would take a long time. 
I just don't want to be bothered. Yeah, they're going to tear down all of your universities. Like everything on the other side of the country is going to be messed up by the time the Civil War ends and you're going to have to go in and manually fix it. They, they changed all of your production methods to something that doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. Um, I think there might be a bug right now, actually, with uh, public schools, because every time I tried to implement public schools, it was like immediately uh, reactionary movement with like 150 percent uh, radicalism and the clergy weren't even that pop popular. So it was like. No, you fucking don't. You're not taking we're not taking Buddhism out of the schools. We'll die first. And I think that was a little bit a little bit of an overreaction, maybe uh, compared to some of the other things I was able to get through relatively painlessly. Um, it, it does. I mean, <laughs> on the I mean, since uh, 1.2 launched, it does mm-hmm. seem like uh, those reforms are significantly more difficult to get through. And uh, I mean. Uh, Brett, just like uh, I was playing the Ottoman Empire earlier today and um, trying to get I mean, it's it was tough as nails to get any kind of government together that was willing to change pretty much anything. So when I had a chance to uh, at least step down from uh, a uh, from the slave trade, uh, gave it a shot and kind of ran into that same issue where it was just like. Oh man. Okay. So they're going to make this a real pain in the neck, aren't they? And yeah, they did. Um, so we, we, you know, stepped up and this is amazing too, just because after the uh, experience of relatively painlessly abolishing slavery in the United States, um, in my, during the review period, uh, this is a totally different experience now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a very different game. now. I, I actually like it quite a bit better than, uh, in the 1.0 release. Um, Ian, did you did you play Victoria 2? I can't remember if I've asked you. No, that I did not. OK, yeah. do you feel like, uh, you know, when you play Victoria 3, did it like did it change your perspective on, you know, the process of industrialization and things like that at all? Um, I, I would. I think so. I, th- I mean, it definitely, I get like, I don't know if I, if it changed it in a way um, that like, I would say, okay, well now I understand what the industrial revolution was about. And uh, been before I didn't, but um, getting a sense of the scale and the speed with which um, you know, the, the process kind of overtook not just Europe, but the, the rest of the world. Um, I thought that it was enlightening that way. I felt it's been, um, yeah, I I think that's kind of the main takeaway is that the, the, the scale and the speed with which these things were happening, um, especially as you lead into the, uh, period, like immediately leading into the first world war. Right. Um, like by the time you get there, the, uh, like warfare has changed completely and, um, your costs have grown exponentially. I mean, everything is so much bigger, um, you know, 80 years after you start. Um, I thought that it was a cool piece of perspective to get, I guess. So yes, short answer. 
Yeah, that is an interesting kind of consideration that comes up as, as like just how much more cumbersome the ship of state is <laughs> in the late game versus the early game, just because of the scaling bureaucracy costs. And like, well, if I change one production method in one state, it's now going to cost me so much extra. It's going to change the profitability of a bunch of stuff. It's going to change the average wages of a bunch of stuff like it's it becomes so much more dangerous to click one button in like 1916 <laughs> <laughs> like Real. you could just have the whole thing wobble off its axis if you're not careful um which is you know which is which is interesting um one other question that i um i i had for sort of this topic though is so we talk a lot about the the sort of industrialization that happened primarily in the 1800s, um, but there were a lot of very advanced societies before that, uh, you know, in China, India, you think about like Rome or like even the ancient Near Eastern empires. And Brett, you talked a little bit about like distance and physical space, but like, what do you think exactly is it that kept any of those highly advanced civilizations prior to the 1800s from just hitting this exponential curve that we finally see when we had, you know, that second industrial revolution. Energy. Uh, and I'm going to explain that, I promise. Um, so prior to, let's say, 1700, we'll say 1700 is, is the beginning of this process in, in Great Britain. Um, Prior to 1700, the sort of the energy mix available for any society um, is dominated by energy sources that derive directly or indirectly from agriculture. If you want to do something, generally speaking, you need to use muscle power to do it, whether that muscle power is a person or an animal, and that person or animal is, de is deriving the energy to do that, that work from agriculture and from the soil um you have some exceptions you can move ships by wind you can mill grain that way and you have very large advanced agricultural societies often begin toying with using coal as a heating element um and so you see some use of coal for household heating in china you see some of it in the roman empire it it doesn't really it doesn't really catch on and there is an argument that is still going as to whether the reason the industrial revolution happened in Britain specifically is because Britain was rich in coal and by the 1700s plumb out of wood <laughs> and so they were just forced to develop coal as a heating source um and and move away from that but so you're you're caught in the in, in this organic economy and to be clear we what I talk about this we're talking about like 80, 90% of the energy available to one of these advanced ancient or medieval societies is coming from agriculture or the forest. You're cutting down trees and burning them. Um, you know, it, it is on that order. And there's just a hard limit to how much energy you can get out. You can organize your society more efficiently. You can, um, you can tinker around the edges of that energy economy. But fundamentally right there is only so much sunshine shining on your fields and wheat is only so good at converting that into energy and your body is only so good at converting that grain 
into muscle power. And it turns out these are all very inefficient steps. And that just places a hard cap on what your society can do on the amount of energy you can use. And in the end, it makes everything you want to do really expensive. Um, what the Industrial Revolution changes that fundamentally alters this equation is the ability to uh, write initially harness chemical energy. Um, obviously, we're now harnessing all sorts of other exciting kinds of energy and use that to drive machines that do work. And so suddenly you can expand the amount of energy available um, to society. And so society can do a lot more. And to be clear, expand it by orders of magnitude um, that you know the amount of energy at the disposal of the average person in a rich country today is thousands of times more the amount of energy available to the average person in those countries, say, 500 years ago. The difference is wild. And, you know, I mean, we want to talk about the limits to snowballing. Um, you know, one of the big arguments when it comes to talking about climate, right, is have we, have we hit the snowball limit for using more energy? Because it turns out that a lot of the really cheap sources of energy we used create problems. And, and obviously the question is, do we, do we need to stop increasing the amount of energy we use or do we need to find less destructive forms of energy to be using um, with people mostly going towards the latter, right? And this is, you know, uh, this is the argument between degrowth on the one hand and sort of investment in nuclear and solar on the other. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about heating because that's exactly what happened in my Japan game is we were... We were basically using all of the wood that was possibly available on, you know, the home islands. I was trying to, like, encourage people to migrate to Hokkaido because that's the only place I could still expand my logging. And so part of why we started switching to coal is because you can use it as a heating. Pops can consume it to to for their heating needs. Um and then, you know, obviously we, we tap that out eventually. So it's like, all right, we're going to start blasting with dynamite and people are going to get their arms blown off because we've we've exhausted our, our ability to get more of the, this, the, the, the special rocks out of the ground. Um, so it is really interesting how it how it uh, models some of those considerations. Um, yeah, well, and of course, right. Part of the story of the Industrial Revolution is also that the countries that industrialized, unless you're the United States, rapidly ran out of domestic resources to, to utilize. I mean, it's not like Britain ran out of coal, but it gets more expensive and more difficult to extract it the further down you go. And so they were already building colonial empires. And well, what if we extract all of these resources from these colonial empires? I mean, Japan is, it is in some ways a latecomer to the game, but it a remarkably pure example of this, that the greater co-prosperity sphere, which is what Japan called its empire in the run-up to World War II, was in many ways about getting access to oil and rubber um, and other raw materials, in part because Japan is one of the most resource-poor places on the globe, um, despite having obviously a huge population and a bustling economy like there. It, it's a volcanic rock, and uh, 
as, as anyone who's played a lot of Dwarf Fortress knows, um, volcanic mm. soil layers are garbage. Yeah. You can't, there, there's, there's no dinosaurs down there to dig up and burn because it was made by lava in the last, <laughs> you know, that, relatively recent geological time frame. That great obsidian, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's you know. always there. So, yeah, it's six of one. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly, what ended up finally uh, saving my economy in that Japan run was ending Shikoku and just making trade agreements with everyone. And then suddenly my like six million unemployed and peasants, they just all went to work in the shipping and service sectors, <laughs> which is, you know, not that different, maybe from uh, from like Japan's uh, later economic miracle. Um, I was going to I was going to say yeah. you managed to skip to the end of the of the Japanese economic story without the incredibly destructive war in the middle that you're like, I could try and conquer for all these resources, but actually it will be cheaper to trade for them, um, yeah. which is sort of this great. Great realization. I always, I always bring this up, but this is an argument made by a scholar, um, Azar Gott, where he argues that actually one of the effects of the Industrial Revolution was that it made war no longer profitable because war became more destructive at the same time that it became cheaper to trade for resources than to go conquer them because you can't move a farm, but you can ship coal and lumber. And so just buy the coal and lumber um, and ship it and, and you can have your, your industry. Um, and so his argument is essentially sometime before presumably 1914, um, war became maladaptive, uh, and we as humans are still in the process of figuring that out because our social structures and our ape brains are incredibly slow to change. Um, and so, um, yeah, war is actually, is, war is bad, actually. Uh, you know, PhD <laughs> military historian... I have wasted most of my life learning about it. And here is the conclusion I come to you with. War is bad, actually. Not great. Not great, Bob. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to it's hard to turn off the ape brain sometimes. I still close my closet every night because ape brain tells me there might be a tiger in there or something. I just have a, an open chasm that I can't see into. Um well, I yeah. have to tell you, uh, I, <laughs> speaking of tigers in the forest, uh, my one of my uh, first games after uh, 1.2 came out, I just kind of uh, jumped into uh, Burma. It's kind of a sandbox game. I oh, had a really? terrible I time. Them. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> it was it looked promising. I mean, it, full of these beautiful uh, forests, full of it turns out Burmese teak. Um, mm. The the problem is uh, this is not a good raw material for you know your beginning economy, which is right. almost entirely dependent on wooden structures. It's hard to work with. Um, you get uh, the the Burmese teak, uh, you, know, re, you know, regional modifier um, gives you plus twenty five percent for building hardwood, but you get minus ten to state construction efficiency and minus ten to infrastructure, just always. Um, so I didn't think to check that until a few years in and I realized, oh, this is why <laughs> it's really hard to get my, um, like I, I can never have enough wood. What's going on? Like this is, uh, this is going so slowly, but, uh, yeah, probably full of tigers too. But, um, I, I, another interesting limiter on, I guess, um, on expansion 
having these kinds of regional um, things like the Cascade Mountains or uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, like if your territory's got specific physical characteristics, then there are costs involved to that. So, yeah, um, obviously, when I played the U.S., uh, you know, I'm from Colorado, so I. I try to do like a Colorado favoritism run where I just I try to get everybody to move to Colorado and make it the economic heart of the country. <laughs> but it's it's tough because those Rocky Mountains, they they uh, they they give you a penalty on infrastructure and uh, construction efficiency compared to, you know, somewhere like Ohio or Michigan, where just the sky is the limit. Um, well, and you can't get you can't get those cheap infrastructure points from ports, right? Because right, I mean, for right. construction cost, right? Build your ports before your railways, ladies and gentlemen, um, because they're the they're the cheap way to get infrastructure. Uh, and you know, Colorado is you know maybe not known so much for its sparkling beaches. No, we do have the Colorado River, which I don't know if there's a place in Colorado you could actually dam the Colorado River. That would produce as, as much power as like the Hoover Dam in real life. But that would be an interesting thing to see as like a great infrastructure project down the line that could kind of provide more jobs and importance to the Southwest. Uh, my my neck of the country, I'm always thinking about little ways they could add flavor to it. Uh, I'd love to I'd love to see like a Hoover Dam project at some point, because that was. That was uh, that was a pretty significant yeah, it um, seems up there with like the Panama Canal and um, yeah, I, I went like there yeah. for the for the first time earlier really this year, and it is kind of cool to see. Oh yeah, when we when we all work together, this is the kind of stuff we can do. This is uh, this is pretty cool. Yeah, so, of course it would. Well, it would come right at the end of the game's timeline. Right, it would be. I, you wouldn't benefit from it very much, but it might. Yeah, be of, course, of course. Now yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah, of course. Now I'm thinking. Like I'm like okay. Now I want to know what what was the first dam of that sort anywhere, and like, does it really come in the game's timeline? And I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the other kind of weird thing is when you first unlock electricity, your base production method is hydroelectric power. Regardless, you could be in Tibet; it doesn't matter. Like that's just like your quote unquote free way to generate electricity. Is I don't know. We found a river somewhere. It's. <laughs> Someone's got a water wheel hooked up to a generator someplace. Right. The, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. We've got a guy with a hose and he's, you know, uh, pumping yeah. water onto a wheel uh, up in the, the Himalayas to, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this was actually, it, this actually is kind of a factor, not for electricity that I know of, but this is a factor early on in the, in the British Industrial Revolution is that some of the devices for using rotary motion to do useful things, particularly milling grain and then later spinning thread into fabric, well, technically spinning fibers into thread and then weaving the thread into fabric, the, the ability to do that with rotary motion comes first, and then a steam engine that can provide the necessary rotary motion comes second. Um, the first atmospheric steam engines come really early but their motion is really jerky because they're a single action steam engine. So all the power is on one stroke. And so if you try to hook those up to something small and fragile, like a, a spinning Jenny, it will just break. Um, so smooth, good steam engines only come later. And so one of the things that you see in Britain is that like, we have used up all of the rivers available for sticking water wheels on. 
and we need more. And this is providing the impetus for better steam engine development. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to loop back around because I think it's pretty interesting that that you, uh, Brett, you highlighted energy as sort of the reason the Industrial Revolution didn't happen until it did. Uh, whereas I think a lot of strategy games, they tend to abstract your base productivity as a society with money, which leads to some issues with snowballing. Um, I mean, I think Total War is a series where they've gotten better at this over time, but it was kind of notorious at one point that like, OK, you have a lot of money. You can build a lot of things that give you more money. And and then, you know, since money is sort of the baseline of everything uh energy availability doesn't really come into it and you can just snowball out of control by spending your money on more money generating engines or whatever um the winner for that was (laughs) i think they eventually patched it but was total war attila as the eastern roman empire your special bonus was that you collected 5% interest on your treasury balance every turn. And so the correct strategy was to shrink your armies down as low as you could still hold your borders with a small, really money-efficient empire and spend the first couple dozen turns building up a ridiculous pile of gold so that your interest payments were more than you could possibly spend. And then you just had infinite money for the rest of the game. And because their whole the whole shtick of that game is that like climate change makes all of your farms worthless, and so everybody's economy declines over time. And you're like, not mine. Not mine. <laughs> I have reached runaway compound interest. Yeah, um, it's a miracle of compound gains. interest. I have yeah. solved climate change. I guess, and I guess, sort of the way they've tried to balance this in in like more recent games is with like the settlement growth mechanic, like your population grows and it sort of grows on a curve that flattens out eventually. So I guess that's modeling, okay, the laborers that are needed, the muscle power you were talking about. You can't just spend more money to get, you know, more manpower whenever you want to build more stuff. Um, Interestingly, the, 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 Chaos Dwarf DLC that they just announced for Total War Warhammer 3, uh, they don't use a growth mechanic at all because in the lore, I guess they're the like a lot of their children are born sick and they have like a really small population. Uh, So it's actually all about going out and getting more slaves (laughs) to extract resources and uh, manufacture things for you that completely replaces the settlement growth mechanic that everyone else has. Um, which is kind of an interesting way to introduce an industrial faction into this fantasy game. That's, I mean, most of the societies are kind of medieval or very, very early modern agricultural societies. It seems like unless they're like demons or something that (laughs) don't propagate in any way that is recognizable to us. Um, yeah. The, of course, the other thing the Total War games have done over their run, I've, I, I, I've always been a little grumpy about this, is that they have <laughs> simplified their economic systems over time to make it so that you're less capable of breaking them in, into, into craziness, right? You go from, uh, you know, Rome Total War 1, where the, value, the trade value of your ports was dependent 
on like this complex. Do you have trade goods? Do other people have trade goods? How many trade treaties do you have? What is the level of your port? How many ports are available in your empire and the empires of people you're trading with? And sort of ports worked like fax machines. The more of them you had, the more valuable they became. And then like jumped to total Warhammer and like this port provides you 600 gold. Yeah. Well, also the original realm, I think it was the original realm and maybe they eventually added this to Rome too. I don't remember, but it, it modeled the fact that eventually an urban center becomes counterproductive population wise and you have to build sewers and stuff or just having that many people so close together who all have to poop somewhere <laughs> eventually <laughs> just causes disease and you know your your big urban provinces aren't growing anymore unless you invest in you know some sort of sanitation system which well, i don't and that, think and yeah that's accurate um, that, you know, before the, the modern period with large cities, because they have an elevated mortality rate, our population sinks. Um, your city needs to be reasonably big before that kicks in. But like, this is definitely, you want to talk about Rome in, say, the first century AD, it has about a million people in it. And like, this is a factor. Rome is siphoning off a lot of the surplus population of Italy uh, because the the population in the city of Rome is continually decreasing because of the heightened mortality. And so it is counteracting the population growth of the countryside around it. And you get ancient demographics get into sort of the complexities of trying to model this relationship. But we do generally understand cities, even actually until relatively late, right? Cities are population sinks. Um, and so you, you would have that even when you build your nice Roman sewers in them. Um, they are, in fact, going to counteract the growth of the countryside. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't really see that in Victoria. They don't really have. They have a distinction between work. I work in an urban building versus I work in a rural building and like the mortality rate might be higher because you get your sleeve stuck in a lathe or something um, or get blown up, you know, blasting out a sulfur mine. Um but they don't really have like a much of a distinction between, OK, people are moving from the countryside into the urban center and just living in urban centers is a different set of concerns um, than it is, you know, living in the countryside. Yeah, uh, it's but- a little it's a little <sighs> odd that your urban infrastructure builds itself. This game is set in a period where I think it's I think it's Chicago was the city that they just levered the whole city up by several feet to install a sewer system in it. Yeah. There's like, um, there's like an undercity under Chicago that like sank yeah. into the swamp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they just like, but like building the sewers for cities in this period to manage these huge populations were enormous undertakings. And in the game, it just kind of does itself. And I'm like, this should really consume more resources than it does. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of, it's referenced in some of the technologies and right. improving your building tech and using more expensive stuff so it's like it's there ish but it's it's not as present of course when it comes to population right victoria 3 is sitting at the leading edge of the demographic transition so your population in this period is exploding uh because your mortality is is collapsing due to the emergence of modern medicine and so you're suddenly going from like an infant mortality rate of like 50 percent to an infant mortality rate of like five percent um, and a maternal mortality rate of maybe 
four or five percent to a maternal mortality rate of maybe 0.5 percent um, per live birth. And so, you know, it turns out that you tweak those variables by that much, and you know, the world population increases by like 700 percent in a hundred years. Um, and then it takes a few, and then of course, Victoria three stops before you get the rest of the demographic transition, which is that people then stop having so many kids and the population stabilizes. Uh, except for France. France has the whole demographic transition really fast for reasons that everybody kind of scratches their head that like France gets to about 1780 and the population just stops growing. And like nobody's like, wait, why? Why did France skip the demographic transition? Hmm. I blame Napoleon. What's what what's uh, what's what do you think is Napoleon's culpability in that? I I think it was uh, honestly my own spitball guess, and I'm not an expert at this, is that it probably has a lot to do with the the trauma of the French Revolution and the following Napoleonic Wars. That like that seems like pretty clearly the break point that France's population is is still increasing like you would expect it would, and then you hit the French Revolution. And then it stalls out while the rest of the populations of Europe explode, which results in all of the other major European states catching up to France in terms of population, where France had been ahead before. Um, and you know, it's not the only country where you can see a sense of almost national ennui exert itself in birth and death rates. Right, birth rates collapsed and death rates rose in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, a problem that you know Putin still thinks is acute, though not acute enough not to throw away all of his young men uselessly outside of Bakhmut. Um, but it, it's resulted in like Russia has a declining population, actively declined, rather than most of Europe is stagnant, um, and and Russia has had this more severe population contraction, seemingly as a result of like. Everybody's super bummed because this huge experiment they did with the Soviet Union turned out to be a terrible idea and it didn't really work. The other thing I've heard uh, is that the more options generally that women have for careers and fulfillment outside of being mothers and homemakers, the slower the population grows, which Victoria does have a little of that, where like if you allow women in the workforce, uh, it I think it gives like it, it doesn't actually give you a penalty. It takes away the five percent birth rate bonus that you get from um, having like the lowest rights of women laws, uh, which is legal guardianship or whatever they. Yeah. yeah. Which is not like it's we're not really to the point, I think, where. In, even by the end of Victoria three, where feminism had come far enough to start really having a major impact on that. Um, is that something, Brett, that you feel like is is like a contributing factor today? Oh, I mean, I think without a doubt, it's, yeah. it's clearly a contributing factor today. I mean, there's also and this gets beyond the, the time frame of, of Victoria three, but like the, the back end of the demographic transition is also associated with increasing options for birth control as well. And so women have a lot more control over the, you know, timing or existence of their pregnancies. And they use those choices. And as a result, the sort of wild upswing in population, um, uh, you know, levels out. And yeah, a lot of that sits beyond um, Victoria 3's 
you know, time frame. I think it's actually it's kind of interesting where Victoria three ends, of course, leaves the struggle for women's rights in kind of an odd moment. Um, one of the things that's incredibly odd, I always think of as, as like an academic, is that if you look at academic circles and you kind of scratch your head, you're like, man, in the 1890s and like the 19 teens and into the 1920s, you have pioneering women scholars and academics in all of these fields. And then you're like, and then they're gone. And then we have to do this whole thing again in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And there is, in fact, this sort of swing. And so, in a way, Victoria III's sort of late game is a, is a period of a kind of a crest of, of the sort of push for women's rights and involvement in society, which it then achieves suffrage in most democratic countries. And then, you know, particularly the sort of social conservatism that comes out of the 1930s and 40s and, and 50s, it, it recedes, it actively goes back. And you see, in some fields, women were more present in the 1890s or 1910s than they were in the late 1940s um, as a sort of result of, of those shifts. And obviously, that's kind of off the back end, but an interesting historical note and a, a, a cautionary reminder to all of us that social progress doesn't just go one way. Mm -hmm. And sort of if we take our eye off the ball, we can lose the things we've won. Yeah, I think about going straight from like Rosie the Riveter to the like leave it to Beaver 1950s housewife. That definitely looks to me like a backslide, even though those are, you know, cultural stereotypes and might not necessarily reflect the reality of the times perfectly. But uh, yeah, um, the one other thing I wanted to talk about with regards to snowballing, which is, you know, a paradox game we haven't mentioned yet this episode but one that I think mechanically handles it maybe better than any other game from that studio is EU4, which obviously there's this contentious issue of mana, but EU4's thesis, and I'm also curious, Brett, if you feel like there's any validity to this historically, is that the thing that keeps you from snowballing and spending all of your money on more money makers is sort of political will or the political apparatus or like the competence or sophistication of your government with the monarch points. Um, no, I think that's, I think that's actually, yeah, everybody complains about mana, but like mana is weirdly <laughs> on target for some of this. So one, um, there are sharply um, in terms of domestic development here, like I'm going to build tall there are diminishing returns to building tall. And yeah, in the pre-industrial world, there are sharply diminishing returns to building tall. I hear people complain about that. And I'm like, man, in real historic societies, building tall sucked as a strategy. Paradox is being <laughs> so nice to you to let you build tall before like 1950. Um, this was just not a good strategy. And then in terms of, oh, I'm going to expand. Yeah, you run out of capable administrators. Your society does not have an unlimited number of literate people that you can trust with important administrative jobs. As you expand the the difficulty of of administering ever more far-flung areas effectively, it gets harder. You need more administrators. There's more communication distance. And NEU4 reflects this, right? You have a limit to how many states you can you can incorporate successfully. Um, and you know, later texts can raise that, but it's, it's like never enormous. And so you hit sharp diminishing marginal returns, which is, 
which is definitely the case. That is what happened to to these these empires. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that you're you're gonna the politics of control. Uh, you may want to conquer more, but but can you do it? Um, can you can you actually manage it? At some point, you hit the point of of sort of negative marginal returns, um, and you know, smart empires stop at that point, um, and you know, foolish emperors keep conquering. Um, I'm always struck to pick an ancient example. Um, you know, the Romans basically settle on the borders they're mostly going to have by the end of the reign of the first emperor, Augustus. And the two big exceptions are Claudius's conquest of Britain and uh, Trajan's conquest of Dacia, both of which we generally accept were bad ideas, that Rome was beyond the point of, of diminishing marginal returns, that like it just, no, there's nothing you're going to conquer in Britain that's going to be worth the cost of, of controlling it. Um, and I appreciate the British's, uh, uh, their commitment to historical accuracy with Brexit, that they're going to create that situation again, where it's a wasteland with nothing of value. Um, but, but, but this was the case that like the Romans further expansion away from the Mediterranean basin that supported the Roman empire entailed costs greater than what you would gain from the newly obtained territory and empires hit those limits a lot. Um, there's a reason why one empire after another, after another in China, um, you know, they have the same core set on the same handful of navigable rivers that all connect to the same navigable coastline. And they all have the same frontiers in Manchuria, Mongolia, Tibet, and Southeast Asia, where the terrain gets crappy and it becomes harder to administer this stuff. It takes longer to send messages. It's it's harder to bring the wealth of your conquests back, and and so they sort of stall out in those same places. Uh, it, it's not because there is some metaphysical idea of China that each of these states are achieving. Um, it's because they're running up against the same geographic constraints to their imperialism. Well, you also have what I guess the good like maybe I've heard this. Uh, described in political science as like network maintenance costs. Every communication that you need to be able to uh, perform administration uh, or, or to give orders or to find out what's happening on your frontiers or anything like that. There's, there's a, there's a cost in terms of time or signal quality, I guess um, you have to pay. And eventually that just becomes greater than the system can bear. Right. Like you're, it's not just the amount of money that's going into the conquest itself or, uh, you know, the expansion of territory, like your supply lines for your military or anything, but just trying to, um, avoid the free rider problems that come with, you know, a, a group expanding this, this, uh, far and, and the distance that the network is covering. Um, I think those are all costs that have to be figured into the, you know, what, you're eventually, like you described, Brett, you know, stalling out on. You might run into the mountains, but even at that point, could you even grow out any further from that point? Just because of these inherent costs that come with having something grow that way geometrically, I guess the costs scale with that in a um, three-dimensional way rather than just linearly. Yeah, and EU4 does have like the concept of governing capacity as well, which I think is sort of equivalent to Victoria 3's 
um, bureaucracy costs. Bureau- but, bureaucracy costs, yeah. Right. But also in both of those games, like we discussed earlier, it doesn't take distance into account. Um, no. Distance from your capital. It doesn't take into account the idea that a, you know, a jungle in Southeast Asia might cost more governing capacity to administer than a fertile plain in northern China that is along a major navigable river. Uh, These are all things that I think could be explored probably in more detail uh, based on everything we've discussed here today. Um, Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how how sort of strategy games have progressed uh, along these ideas of stopping players from turning their success into too much more compounding success. Um, Ian, I feel like you haven't had a lot of chance to talk <laughs> this episode, uh, but do, do you feel like there's a game that does this particularly well? Either one of the ones we've already talked about or, or just something else that came to mind as, oh, yeah, that was a really good uh, sort of anti-snowballing. I don't know that this is uh, it speaks to snowballing so much, but I, I was thinking, you know, when we were talking about, you know, the 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 costs that distance imposes on communications and um, how that can make that impractical in a way that you don't normally see in games. I, Armored Brigade does that, I think, pretty well. There's a um, kind of uh, sim-heavy uh, Old War RTS where your communications with your commands that you give to your units will take longer uh, to be acted on, I guess, depending on whether you go through the chain of command. Uh, For instance, if you were to, like you can, if you want to give an order to an individual squad uh, way out on the front lines, but it'll take some number of minutes before that filters down and the squad actually moves. Um, Whereas if you were to give a kind of broad command to the, uh, the commanding unit, to the company or the, or the battalion that they're part of, um, that, order will uh, go into effect a lot more quickly. Uh, I thought that was an interesting approach to just the fact that, you know, to, to, or at least an attempt to take into account the fact that these communication networks kind of exist for a reason and, and, um, and distance and uh, I guess quality of uh, communication can make a big difference. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I think there are some pretty good ideas at play in Victoria 3 itself. I mean, I'm certainly uh, finding myself pretty uh, limited from snowballing very hard. I seem to be running into uh, walls uh, left and right, especially with this uh, kind of retuned experience that's in this kind of patched version of the game. So whether it's, uh, you know, the Burmese teak or... Uh, um, revolution in the ottoman empire yeah it's um something i think just links sort of the the trajectory of victoria 3 is something i think we'll talk more about probably uh down the line because i i I know i have a lot more to say about this patch in particular which was not the main topic of the episode but we kind of wove it in in uh in in places um before we get out of here um, Ian, do you have anything to, to plug? I know you got a new gig. Yeah, uh, that's, that's it. Um, I'm, uh, editor over at, uh, taptap.io. If you want to, uh, 
head on over there. It's a, kind of a social games platform, but I'm really liking it. It's exciting. So um, you can find that in my Twitter bio and stuff. And uh, Brett, anything new and interesting on the blog? Um, you know, right now we're uh, we're we're walking through uh, the the governance structures of ancient Greek city states. So, uh, you know, that's new and exciting to me. Uh, I continue <laughs> to be surprised that it's exciting to other people. Um, so, you know, we're 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 doing we're doing what we're doing. I did want to add just one thing. I feel like. I feel like we've missed out in talking about the ultimate anti-snowball mechanic, which is Dwarf Fortress frame death. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Eventually, There's also the circus, yeah. too. You know, well, if, yes. if yeah. you believe in uh, simulation theory, eventually uh, our society will just become so complex that uh, whatever computer is running it won't be able to render any more human consciousnesses, and it'll just, you know... I guess subjectively we wouldn't notice. Maybe it's already started to happen, but you know our brains only update you know when when the the CPU clock updates. So we that's right. Yeah, we're know. we're CPU tied. Yeah, <laughs> our brains are our frame rate tied. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, that's we'll uh, get that's ready for one. the sixty FPS protest for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there we go. Um, Why is my yeah, equipment so- degrading twice as fast? Oh, it's I need the Dark Souls patch. <laughs> Uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can check us out there uh, as well as uh, some other shows. We've got forums. A couple people still use the forums, our our dedicated forum warriors. That's idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. We are supported, as always, by listeners just like you on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash 3MA. You hadn't heard, we redid all of our tiers at the beginning of this month. And uh, basically everything is cheaper, so <laughs> you can get more stuff for less money. Go check those out. Um, we appreciate your support, particularly that of our uh, Patreon producers, including Mark M and Bucktown Party Whip for 3MA RTS sessions. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to join some 3MA RTS sessions, our uh, Discord VIP tier gives you access to the gun room, which is our multiplayer community. We're doing Dwarf Fortress succession game right now. We might do some Company of Heroes 3. There's some some rumblings about that and uh, just whatever else we feel like jumping into. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we try out some Victoria 3 multiplayer at some point. We can actually find a good day for everyone to do it. Um, I think the game's stable enough now that it might it might be time to start thinking about that. Um. We're on Twitter, where we are at 3MA. And I think that's going to do it. We'll be back next week for this is kind of a weird month because there's five Fridays, but it'll either be a Patreon episode or or a regular episode next week. And until then, for Brett and for Ian, this is Lynn saying goodnight.